and welcome to the Pastor Mike Drop Podcast. I'm your host, joined by my co-host, Emily. Hello. Hi, how are you? Great, how are you? Uh, good and excited to dive into some really, really good stuff that yeah. a lot of people are asking a lot of questions. We have as many or more questions ahead of time than we've had for a long time. Yes, we sure do. So thank We're you. We're going to get to them. Re- yes, we'll get to them. And thank you for sending those in. We We want to shape this podcast, and we've tried to do that all year long around the questions that people are asking as we're reading through the whole Holy Bible together mm-hmm. as a church family. So, Emily, let's introduce our distinguished panel of pastors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See how distinguished they are. They're in yes. agreement. Uh, Pastor Andy and Pastor Murph, both from our Grimes campus. Hello yes. to you both. Yep. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, we should have carpooled, but we did not. So yeah. we'll Could work have. on that next <laughs> yeah, you time. Come, next come time. from the same campus. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. That's how busy pastors are. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. You're coming from different places, probably, yeah. and, yeah. and yeah. maybe somebody's a hospital, somebody's somewhere else, somebody's at church, and boom. That's great. But I'm glad you made it. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming. How are things in Grimes? We're having really a blast. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, really good. Yeah. yeah. I hear I hear good things. Yeah, can't gearing wait up to... for a lot, too. Yeah, gearing up for a lot. Mm-hmm. We're, we're coming up on the opening of our school year and all the ministries for all different ages at all of our campuses, so I'm sure you guys have a few things cooking. Uh, yes. Just one Looking forward yeah. to it. Yep. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, That's it will. Great. It will. And, uh, you know, for those of you who are local sports fans, we probably should just get this out of the way. <laughs> out of the way. This is Murph. This is Andy. Mm-hmm. That's a daily sports talk radio show, mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah. I love those guys. Um, but this is Pastor Murph and yeah. Pastor Andy. There not, you go. Not, not to be some confused. Some may be disappointed today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, maybe they're listening, yeah. and maybe there we'll listen go. to them later. Welcome. It's no accent res- you're here. That's yeah, right. reciprocal yeah. kind of arrangement. Yeah. Um, but that's great. Uh, yeah, I've met both those guys. They're really super guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't hold a candle to Pastor Murph and Pastor Andy. <laughs> we're we're really glad that you guys are here. So... With that, are you ready, Emily? I think so. You got a ton of questions, and she's yes. I, she's sorting as we go as yes. they're as they're coming in because <laughs> yes. we're covering covering Ecclesiastes today, mm-hmm. and we're covering First and Second Thessalonians. So, with that, Ted Lasso, help us out. Why don't we just jump right in? Anybody got any questions? Oh yeah, no, should have saw that coming. Okay, let's start with the Old Testament readings. What do you want our podcast listeners to know that will help them make sense of Ecclesiastes? Yeah, a lot of great things. One, I would say it is not it was not written with America in mind, but it could not be more relevant to our life today. Uh mm-hmm. you have uh Solomon believed to be the author, uh and he had a lot of material resources, a lot of experiences. He had access to what he wanted in life and he wrestles with uh what that all means and what the conclusion is. So to me, if you really want to understand, though, uh, this book, you have to read it in the voice of Eeyore mm. uh, from Winnie the Pooh. So <laughs> it's a bit of a downer. That's a deep yeah. theological yeah. cut right there. But uh, chapter one, <laughs> verse two, everything is meaningless. Oh, it helps. It does. does. I see what you're doing. Completely meaningless. These are so. the kind of tips I'm here for. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, great. it actually, we're here to help our Bible readers. Right? And, and we want you to be able to make sense of it. Ecclesiastes is one of the most difficult books mm. in all of the of the sixty six books in the Bible for us to read, and yet it's one of my favorites. Yeah, and it's not because I'm you know a downer kind of guy. Mm. I tend to be more optimistic than pessimistic. But my goodness, it's so relevant. You you said it. You know, it was written centuries ago, half a world away, and yet God's word is universal. There's a timelessness to it. There's an, there's there's a uh, you know comprehension to it that is inclusive and brings us all in. So agree, it wasn't written, you know, primarily with America in mind or anything like that, but God certainly knows the future. And 
it's so, as you said, Pastor Andy, highly relevant for yeah. American life today. Let's say more about that. What do you guys see there? So here's American life, here's Ecclesiastes. How do they, well, how do they come together? I, I would say it speaks to the futility of things like wisdom, right? How much information we have, and we live in the information age, right? Pleasure, wealth, resources. Uh, do those have the thing, the power to give us what we truly deeply long for, right? Which is joy and satisfaction. At the end of the book, I mean, he cuts the chase and says... It's your relationship with God, fearing God and, and connecting with Him. But man, we love to go a lot of different places, right, to find our satisfaction that we long for. Yeah, and if we're talking about Solomon uh, as the author here, I mean, he went, he had everything. He had yeah. power, money, wisdom, uh, and he actually engaged in that pretty well early on. And then he started getting into this place of enjoying that power, enjoying the pleasure. And he had many wives, and he starts worshiping other gods because they were worshiping other gods. And he starts to realize towards the end of his life that, man, I've had everything I could possibly want. And still he says, it's meaningless yep. compared to the Word of God, compared to what God does in my life. Yeah, most scholars think that Solomon wrote this. I mean, it's, it's pretty direct at verse 1. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, and King David's son is Solomon, who ruled over Jerusalem. Solomon did yeah. that. Plus, Solomon had the reputation for being the wisest king who ever lived. Um, brilliant, and Ecclesiastes reads that way. It's part of the wisdom yeah. literature, the genre of literature in the Old Testament called wisdom or wisdom literature. But it's fascinating because, you, and you mentioned this, Andy, that he's actually taking a shot at wisdom. God, remember, this isn't just Solomon's wisdom. This is God's wisdom. Yeah. yeah. Through Solomon saying, when you live for wealth, when you live for your career, when you live for pleasure, when you live for status... It's not going to end well. It's not going to go well, actually, because it. You'll wonder along the way, when do I get satisfied? When 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 does the when does the reward come for this? Because I'm starting to achieve. If you are, let's say you're achieving wealth. Let's say you're achieving success in your career. Let's say you're achieving success in family life. Yeah, in wisdom, in the pursuit of more degrees, you know, college degrees, uh, grad school degrees, uh, getting more accomplished. It's not that the Bible is saying those things are bad things. Mm -hmm. It's saying they make lousy gods. Mm -hmm. They're horrible things to live your whole life for because they don't satisfy. They don't, they, they aren't, they don't have the potential to fill you up. The, the Hebrew word here that's translated as vanity in some of the older English translations, everything's vanity, it's all vanity, or meaninglessness in the NIV and some of the more modern English translations. The Hebrew word is hevel. And Hevel means, um, well, it can mean vanity, it can mean meaninglessness, but it, it's also one of those, it's like a diamond. You know, depending on how you shine the light on it, you can find different facets of it. The light shoots out in different ways from that word. And so it's, yes, it's vanity. Yes, it's meaninglessness, but it's also like smoke and mm -hmm. vapor, stuff that's here and it just sort of fades. You know, if, if, there's, if there's smoke in a room, then it eventually starts to dissipate. And I think... I don't think, I know that's what the author here is saying. It's probably King Solomon saying, look, I've lived this, <laughs> as you said, Murph. Yeah. I had everything. I have everything. I got more money than I know what to do with. I've got status. 
I've got power. I've got entertainment. I bring in the Jim Carrey of my day to come and entertain me live mm-hmm. anytime I want. I, you know, he has clowns. He's got act. He's got stage plays, and they put him on for the king. I've got gardens. I've got wine. I've got. <laughs> he was pretty passionate about women. Mm-hmm. Um, married to three hundred wives and seven hundred concubine. And we're yeah. getting very offended <laughs> yeah. over there. As am Quite I. A lot. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's he pursued everything he possibly could that the world told him. You just need more of that. And he calls it hevel, smoke, mm-hmm. vapor, mm-hmm. Uh, vanity, meaningless. It's a cautionary yeah. word yeah. and a very strong warning, not just for Americans, but for any culture in any time throughout history that starts to live for anything less than God. It's a dangerous thing to do. Absolutely. One of our write-ins related it to the American dream, yeah, which is what you're saying. Like you strive for all this stuff, but you leave it. It leaves you empty. Right, mm-hmm. right. In, in the pursuit of happiness, in the pursuit of all yes. these things that we have written into the founding documents of our country, we probably should step back and say, what's going to really make us happy? Yeah. Long term. Yeah. What's, what's going to produce a, a deeper joy? What's going to give us something that we can hold on to? And it isn't money and wealth mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. status and career and pleasure. It's God yeah. and God alone. And that's ultimately where this book goes. We got multiple questions Specifically about Ecclesiastes 3. Can you guys unpack that a bit? Yeah, who wants to start? Andy, Murph, either one of you. This is a classic passage. Yeah. And there's even a a famous song from the 60s or 70s that Mm -hmm. came out from it, right? Go ahead and sing a little bit of that if you would. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear me sing, I promise. (laughs) To everything, turn, turn, turn. There you go. Um, And there's a time and a season for everything. I'll just start reading it and then you you guys can comment. For everything, there's a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to cry, a time to laugh, a time to grieve, a time to dance, and on and on and on it goes. What is going on here? Well, some, some of those times we enjoy, some we do not, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the human inclination is want to control those things uh, and to make it what we want. And again, I love this book because I think it's ruthlessly honest uh, about the things that we don't want to talk about, right? Our shelf life on this planet, our inability to satisfy ourselves. Uh, And he's honest about it. I have seen the burden God has placed on us all, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He's planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people can't see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. We go through these seasons... We don't understand, and, and we all ask the why question eventually. If, if you don't watch the news and ask why on earth is this happening in this world we live in, then you're not being honest with those things. But I think there's uh, some permission in here to say, we're not going to understand it all. These seasons exist, and God, God gets it. We do not. And there is a surrender that has to take place with this. Not, not that we just turn a blind eye and say, well, God, you know, it's all going to be fine. Uh, we believe that God wins. We're going to talk about that a little later, right? But I, I think that life is not simple, uh, and there are seasons that are hard, and I think this acknowledges, creates some room for some of those things. Yeah. And I think, too, when we look at all those seasons, there's worries, there's things that we uh, we kind of anticipate. But when I think about the hard times that I've been through, think about the the better times that I've been through, it's just a reminder that each day is a gift mm-hmm. and that, you know, we go back to the scripture that says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Because I can sure worry about a lot of things and a lot of seasons that I know are coming in my life, in my family's life, in our church life. But I also know that today mm-hmm. we are here and today God is still king 
And that's what matters most. It's good thoughts. The, the poetry of this, and I think the reason this has become a part of our you know, vernacular, the, the way we talk about life. There's a time for this. There's a time for this. It's not the season, people say. This isn't the right season, or, or I'll come into that season of life. It's all right here from Ecclesiastes 3. It's from the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Whether people know it or not, yeah. we could use that kind of language without even knowing it's grounded in Scripture. It's grounded in God's Word. But I want to point this out to lesser known, but just a few verses later after this, this famous poem, which became a hit song, um, it says, starting uh, in verse 11, God has planted eternity in the human heart, halfway through verse 11. I love that, yeah. that there's something inside of each of us that can get covered up, that can get squashed down, that can get denied, that can get pushed into his shadows. But there's something inside of every one of our human hearts that God has planted, and that something is this, this understanding that there's more to life than this world. There's more to life that's, than what's going on here. Now, that's, a li- that's good news. Mm-hmm. It's really good news that we have this sense that there's something more. But there's also a danger in that, a potential danger in that, which is to say, well, if, if this world stinks and the, the world to come, the kingdom of heaven, mm-hmm. it, which we'll talk about a lot when mm-hmm. we get to First and Second Thessalonians, then bring it on. Let's go. Who cares about this world? Who cares right. about what we're doing here? But, but read on just a little bit closer. Solomon is not anti this book. Ecclesiastes is not anti seasons and times. Like you said, Andy, there are some times that you need to enjoy. Soak those up. Glimpses of heaven, this side of heaven, even in this fallen world. Not only has God planted eternity in the human heart, uh, and even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Next verse, verse 12. So I concluded there's nothing better than to be happy. Well, there's our little burst of sunshine in the midst of the Eeyore moment, right? That it's better to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. We should eat, drink, enjoy the fruits of our labor, for these are gifts of God. Wonderful. Enjoy your life, folks. Being Too many Christians think we're supposed to be Eeyore. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be so down on everything in this world. Now, we should be down on the evil things and mm-hmm. the dark things and the sinful things for sure, and, and that are in us too, not just in other people. But we should be completely up and, and appreciative and enjoy and embrace and soak up, immerse ourselves in the seasons that are good, in the times that are good. Look, Christian, you aren't called to be a grump. You aren't yeah. called to be the yeah. Debbie Downer. Have you ever seen that skit on SNL? The the woman who comes in and just everyone's having a good time. They're at Disneyland, <laughs> oh, yeah. and she's like, well, you know, this food's been told by the <laughs> FDA that it's not good for you. Wah, wah. That's not the Christian call. No, We're supposed to be light and salt. We're, we're supposed to be the life of the party, um, not in a wild, crazy, out-of-control way. Yeah. That's... You know, he already covered that. He's like, if you live for those pleasures, that isn't going to do it. But it's okay to be happy. It's, it, it's okay, not only okay, it, it's biblical. I mean, yeah. it's what we're called to be. That's good. Okay, switching gears then, what can we learn about the from the opening chapters of First Thessalonians about what's going on and what's worth celebrating in first century Thessalonica? You Pastor nailed Mark. the name of that title. I really worked on good it. Job. Yeah, Thank Emily. You. That was yeah. good. Really good. Very nice. 
Uh, yeah, there. Uh, there's a couple things to know. Like, I think it's good when you know when Paul's writing these letters because they're not like always in chronological order. Um, and so, understanding that Paul is uh, on, he's gotten to Thessalonica, Thessalonica and uh, he has um, he has been coming. It's about 50 uh, A.D. at this point. He's on his second missionary trip. Uh, he's not quite imprisoned and making his way up to Rome at this point. So uh, he's making his way through. He's had a really rough time uh, in Philippi, where he just came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he's actually writing this letter, um, so he's not going to write a letter to Thessalonica while he's still in Thessalonica. He's gone on to Corinth. He's writing uh, back to them. Um, he's experienced some hard times. He's experienced some persecution uh, in Thessalonica. He has experienced some persecution in other places, and he specifically names uh, some Jewish people that were bringing this persecution. And I think it's a great time to just be really careful when we're reading Scripture uh, that we don't allow uh, a passage or a verse to start leading us into anti-Semitism and start thinking, oh, uh, we're going to blame a certain group. Paul is speaking about a very particular group at a very particular time and what he has experienced in this group. Just quickly, I'm glad you said that it's not biblically faithful to universalize specific anecdotal stories Absolutely about not. things that actually happened. Now, if we're going to be truth tellers, we have to say if, if there were some Jewish people in a particular group that were giving Christians some serious problems as they were in Thessalonica, we would be wrong not to mention that. Exactly. But that it, it is a leap that is not biblically supportable to say. So therefore, mm-hmm. every right. everybody in that situation would yep. do the same thing. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. So go on, please. Yeah, and so Paul has come. He's brought the message. He's brought the good news. And as he's leaving, it's kind of like, okay, I think things are going to go well here. But like anyone, he's got worries, and he wants to know that the gospel message has been heard. And so he's got this faithful companion, Timothy. He sent Timothy back uh, to check on things, and the report he gets back is good. And what that helps Paul to understand is the message was received. God has uh, really convicted their hearts in a good way. And if God has convicted their hearts in a good way, what really matters is that the Holy Spirit is active and alive in their lives. And that is really good news. That means they are ready to thrive and continue following God's ways. Can they be led astray? Can other bad things happen? Yeah, there's some people trying to do that. But, uh, but Paul is now feeling very encouraged by what he's heard from Timothy about the people there. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, I mean, they're, yeah, they're going against some really strong headwinds, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it's just me, uh, but there are days where I just long for the Staples easy button, right? <laughs> yes. That was easy. Every, yeah, exactly. Everything from parenting to faith, right? Like it would just it would just be great. And I think sometimes we get into this comfort zone, especially in a country like the United States, where we think, well, wait a minute, like somebody doesn't agree with me, like that's hard or offensive. And so not only has this gospel message taken root, but it's taken root in a really difficult situation, yeah. and they're persevering, uh, anticipated. And sometimes we just forget what Jesus said, right? In this life, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the yeah. world. So we're imitating him as we encounter those things, hopefully with grace. Yep. I think, I think Paul sums it up really nicely in his opening chapter in First Thessalonians. If you look at verse 10, the back half of it. Says Jesus is the one who's rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're getting persecuted now and you feel like more is coming, and they did, they mm-hmm. they, they the 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 Thessalonians were scared and they were worried and they were nervous. Paul commends them, as you guys said, mm-hmm. for keeping the faith in the midst of persecution, which is a timeless truth for mm-hmm. all Christians in all ages. 
But he also says, and he's, we're going to get to this. He says, you know, not only are you going to be okay now, wait till I tell you about how this story is going to end mm-hmm. in, in the end times in the future. And Paul goes there because, specifically because they're feeling persecuted. In the same way Revelation goes there for the seven churches in yeah. first century Asia, who are in some many, many ways enduring persecution, uh, you know, with emperors like Nero, you, you know, you've got Rome, you've got others who are rising up and persecuting Christians. There is a lot of Christian persecution in our world today, too. They need letters like First Thessalonians, mm-hmm. Second Thessalonians, too, where uh, Paul says, God will use this persecution to show his justice. So God uses our hard times to break through and say, yeah, but I'm still God. Mm-hmm. And we need to keep that in mind and take that to heart too, I believe. And it's such good news. It's such comforting news Mm -hmm. to say, no matter how bad it gets, because there's a lot of talk out there amongst Christians, boy, it's it's really getting bad. It's never been worse. And Paul's saying, yeah, but God, (laughs) you know, (laughs) let me, let me, let me, let me remind you who's on your side and who's for you. And because he's for you, his justice will prevail over this persecution. His good will prevail over this evil is light for the darkness. Yeah. Great. Next question says, what's wrong with living for human praise or to please people instead of God? And how does that affect the way churches should function? Well, I mean, I don't think any listener will be surprised when I tell you that living for human praise is a bad idea. Mm. Yeah. Um, although we know the right answer, <laughs> like if it was on a quiz at Sunday mm-hmm. school, like should I live for myself yeah. or for, uh, should I live for the praise of other people? Or should I live for the glory of God and, and to praise God and, and for God to say yes to the way I'm living my life? Well, of course, we're, li- we're called to live for God, not for other people. But why? I, I, I want to I dive a little deeper into that because of the messes that it creates when we start living for the praise of other people. When we live for the praise of other people, we discover, and I'm getting old enough to have learned this the hard way so many different times, uh, so one blind beggar telling other blind beggars where to get food, the good food, the really good food. If I live for the praise of other people and to try to get them to say, wow, that was great, or I commend you for that, and I think that's going to do it for me, that's going to be the disappointment. Not to mention, short of that, if I live for the praise of other people, and even if I've earned it and deserve it and don't get it so many times, then that's going to be disappointing. There's just really no place where you live for the praise of other people where it ultimately ends up in a win, where it's like, well, I live for the praise of other people. I got the praise of other people, and it was good. I mean, and it, and it, and it held. It, it, it didn't fade away like smoke and vapor, vanity, meaninglessness, hevel, and Ecclesiastes. So the second part of that question, though, is how does that affect the way churches should function? Well, a lot of churches start out well-intentioned, and then if they have some growth, if they have a lot of growth, it gets even more tempting. We've had to face these temptations here over the last three decades. We've experienced a lot of growth um, here at Hope over the years, way more than we ever thought was possible. I mean, it's overwhelming sometimes. So we could start to think, yeah, Mm. you know, that's that's, that's the way Murph does it. That's the way Andy does it. It's the way Emily leads. It's the way we do the things that we do. That's why hope is growing like this. And then we get humbled and we get reminded, no. And so 
Fortunately, I think one of the greatest blessings just personally for me as a church leader is I learned this lesson the hard way within the first month that I was here at Hope. Told that story before, not going to retell it again, but um, humility, I have all sorts of issues. Humility isn't one of them. Uh, I I know who's doing this and Mm -hmm. I know who isn't, and I don't get confused Mm -hmm. about that. And I try to build teams around me with staff and and lay leaders who get that. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you look at our worship band, a lot of success. I mean, you know, a lot of people know them. They've got one music video that they put out there that has over a million views, I think, on YouTube. They, that could get to our heads. But that, if you just watch other churches, pride comes before the fall, and, and that doesn't glorify God. When we go from the, doing church for the right reasons, which is for the glory of God, to doing church for the wrong reasons, which is to get the praise of other people or, or to get our brand out there, to get, our, get attention... That's when everything starts to implode and, and fall apart. Um, I've seen it. That's also a good deterrent when, when other churches that we have really admired and learned from along the way suddenly lose their way, or not suddenly, usually it's over a period of time, lose their way and then they fall. That's <clears throat> kind of a, a reminder and a, and a good one. So it's not just individually, but it's also within churches. And it's not just for pastors and ministers. Mm-hmm. It's for anybody listening to this podcast, whatever church you belong to, to stay humble, um, to live for the glory of God, not the glory and praise of other people. I think it's easy to look at a big church and think, oh, maybe they do just like make everyone happy and yep. do what people want. I can promise you that's yeah. not the case. I heard that this week. Oh, a church that size, there must be something not Wrong. okay. Yeah. There must be something that I don't agree with that they're doing. Otherwise, it wouldn't grow like that. Or there's mm-hmm. a lot of assumptions. I'm sure you are weird with money. I'm sure mm-hmm. you you yeah. pay your staff ridiculous amounts of money. I'm sure you um, probably have a whole lot of things going on behind the scenes that nobody knows about. And because we know that that uh, skepticism... I think it's almost mm-hmm. healthy skepticism, mm-hmm. unless it goes so far that it keeps people f- away from the light mm-hmm. of God's love. There are a lot of small churches that fall into these traps, mm-hmm. too. And there, it's not big or small that does this, because there are a lot of faithful megachurches. There are a lot of unfaithful megachurches. There are a lot of faithful small churches. There are a lot of unfaithful small churches. What matters is, are you faithful? What matters is, where's your heart and what's your motive? Mm-hmm. Are you doing this to make money? Are you are you doing this to go after the things that Ecclesiastes says don't go after? Are you doing this for the praise of other people, to get a reputation, to become popular? Or are you doing this for the glory of God? And, you know, it's always good to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Yes. And yeah. we're, we're constantly holding each other accountable on that mm-hmm. stuff around here. And, and please, that doesn't mean we're immune. That doesn't mean we couldn't fall. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we won't slide. But... It's good to have those deterrents. It's good to have that accountability. It's good to have this word from God that reminds us living for the praise of other people is really a, it just never ends well. So not interested. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really don't, I really don't want to end like that. Yeah. Okay. What's the connection that Paul makes between our bodies and holiness? Yeah. Well, uh, in the New Testament, Paul is pretty passionate about the fact that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's where God and uh, the earth collide. Uh, and so, doggone it, we should probably take care of that temple. But I I think this is just way bigger than any sort of rules or shoulds. I think there are opportunities here. Uh, it turns out if we are living out our design, if we're honoring our bodies, if we're following the the boundaries that God has set up, not not to make us feel guilty or not to make us feel bad, 
But so we can maximize the joy in life and minimize pain. Uh, there are seasons of pain. Ecclesiastes already talked about that. There's just some wisdom. Uh, any any product you buy usually comes with an instruction manual, probably helpful to follow those guidelines. And when we do, I think that sets up opportunities for the fruit of the Holy Spirit to be present in our lives. And it turns out that's really helpful even to the world around us, to be filled with the joy and the peace not tied up in a situation where, you know, relationships are either crumbling that we're involved in or we are uh, taking actions that are inflicting pain on other people and relationships around us. There's just a better way to live. Mm, that's good. There's the, the connection, too, between holiness and the body. Paul goes big here. He said, you know, this is the problem with promiscuity. This is the problem with having affairs. This is yeah. the problem mm-hmm. with... Uh, hurting people, violence. This is the problem any, that hurts another person's physical body. This is the problem with living a life. Well, it gets back to the question before. Are you living for what you can... It gets back to Ecclesiastes. Are you living for personal pleasure or yeah. the praise of other people? Or are you living for the glory of God? Do, who do you trust? Do you trust God enough to say, if God has his word here for us, it would be wise for us to follow it? Yeah. Okay, ready to talk about the rapture? Let's go. What does it mean that one day believers who are still alive will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air? So yesterday at our campus pastors meeting, which is always really fun, you guys were there. Yeah. I, you were there too, Emily. Yes. I was there. We were all there. We talked about staging. We're not going to do it, but we're going to stage during the podcast a rapture. So like some of us would be raptured to heaven yep. and then some would be left behind mm-hmm. and there'd just be, you know, like. My, obviously, I'd be raptured. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you guys would be raptured. I'd, Emily, for sure, I'd be left behind and that nobody'd be here to film it anymore because yeah. we know that the studio team is faithful for sure. and pure. For and sure. Kelsey, our communications I think expert. I was offered up to be left behind. <laughs> and I came to your, to you your really defense. Did. Mm-hmm. You really As no, I know no. you too well to know if anyone's <laughs> going to get raptured around here, it's you. So what is the rapture? Most people will say it's right here in First Thessalonians 4. But if you take a closer look, uh, not just at this passage, start in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, well, verse 17 is kind of the key verse. So let's take a look at that, everybody. Grab your Bibles at home. It says, together, uh, I'll back up one verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Don't miss that last line. Mm -hmm. This should be encouragement. This should be hope. Too many people use the apocalyptic literature of the Bible as fear-mongering, as let me scare the snots out of you, maybe to get you to buy my book or Mm -hmm. to listen to my podcast or my radio show or whatever else. That's not faithful. It, if we read any of the apocalyptic literature in the Bible and end, to end with any other conclusion than hope, mm. we've missed the point. Mm. It's hopeful for anybody who has a mustard seed of faith in Jesus Christ. For those who don't, and we'll get to this a lot deeper when we get to Revelation and other places where it looks like, wow, some people are really getting a good ending, <laughs> and some people are getting the most horrendously terrible ending ever, being apart from God. And they say, why would God send people to hell? Why would God send people away? And the rapture kind of, or people who, who call this the rapture point to this kind of stuff and say, some will go to heaven, some will go to hell. And so then they use fear to push everybody's buttons and like, we're going to focus on this. And this is the most important thing we could focus on. Actually, Jesus and his cross and his mm-hmm. resurrection is the most important thing we could focus on. 
There are two traditional teachings here that I think are important to point out. For 18 plus centuries, every, every Christian and scholar and teacher read this relatively the same way. This is about Jesus' second coming, that Jesus will come, he'll meet us in, in this particular way, and then that will be the end of this world as we know it, and heaven comes to earth and or we are brought to heaven, and there's debate on that kind of stuff. But you know what? It ends the same place anyway. So that's view number one. It was around for 18-plus centuries. Then a guy named Darby came along, started talking about things like dispensationalism, which is really intriguing to me, and it's fascinating. And there are a lot of Christians in the world today who hold this view, premillennial dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. There's a tribulation involved. People can be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Uh, meaning does the rapture happen before the trib or in the middle of the trib or after the trib and where's the millennium that's thousand year reign happen in the midst of that because they're taking literally visions that are in the book of revelation and in daniel and in nehemiah and in some other places and they piece that together with first thessalonians 4 and they start although there's debate as to how you do it to try to develop a, a chronological timeline of here's where mm -hmm. we are Here's the end, and here's all the things that have to happen. There's somewhere in there. There's the rapture, somewhere meaning people get get like taken up, snatched is the Greek word, um, like you would snatch something off the ground real quick. Mm -hmm. They get taken up to heaven, and others are left behind to deal with the perse the persecution or the tribulation, uh, and it all connects. It all connects to Daniel, to Old Testament scriptures, all that kind of stuff. That sounds pretty scary. Until you get to that last verse again, encourage mm -hmm. each other with these words. So we can't go there or we're missing the point. The folks who have this premillennial dispensationalist view, like I said, it's fascinating. Lots of people in our church hold that view. Um, there's a challenge to it, though. And we only say this because we want iron to sharpen iron and we want the Bible to lead us, not human traditions. The word dispensationalism is not in the Bible. Uh, uh, rapture is not in the Bible. That's not a word that's used here or anywhere else in Scripture. And that doesn't mean that it won't happen necessarily the way they say it's going to happen. But if for 18 centuries everybody said this is about the second coming of Jesus, that's pretty compelling to me. And so I would probably tend toward that in my view on this, that I would hold the more traditional view on this, not the new age funky kind of thing that's come up in the last couple of centuries. But I got no problem with people who hold that view. Because here's the thing, when it's all said and done, people say, are you pre-millennialist? Are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Where, where do you land? And they say there's seven different ways to look at this, or there's four different ways to look at this. I really think there's only two. And then the, the, the one that's different, there's a variety of different ways you can fight over that. But So it's either it's the second coming or it's all the things that happened before the second coming. Either way, it ends the same, folks. Mm -hmm. mm. We're not as disunited on this as, as a lot of believers claim we are and say, well, you can't hang out in my church because we don't agree. Wow. Does that sound like Jesus or the devil? Mm -hmm. That I will divide a church over how they view the sequence of events that's going to happen between now and the time when Jesus will come again, his second coming, as he promises. And there's no debate on that in the Bible. He's going to come again to judge the living and the dead, and it's going to be good news for all who have faith and trust in him. It's a long answer because this is an important yeah. point. Mm -hmm. Yep. But I'm not apologizing for that because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And one of the things that's probably on the tip of that misinformation is if we don't agree, we can't hang out together. Or you're not faithful if we don't agree on this. 
We all agree how it's going to end. Yep. Jesus wins, the devil loses, people who believe will be with Jesus forever and ever, and it's going to be great. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death. Yeah. That's the good news. So encourage each other with these words. Now, that's hope. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a hopeful word. If we go anywhere else, we aren't staying true to Scripture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important that you just, when you read these texts, you go back to where, Murph, you kind of introduced it, right? These are people who are enduring hardship, right? They are in need of hope. And I think when we understand why this is being shared, how this makes sense with, you know, meeting a need, I'm, I'm sure they were worried, right? I'm sure they're getting exhausted and and need encouragement. And I, I think it's so helpful. Even, even when I preach a funeral these days, yes, we talk about the resurrection. We talk about uh, there is new life. There's eternity available. But I also throw up throw in there, and God's not done yet, right. right? We can hang on. And man, some days it is hard to hang on, but we can because we know how the story ends. Yeah, we have hope because we know how the story ends. And I think you mentioned it, Mike, but the, the fear is, I think, what really comes into this. Mm -hmm more than anything. And because we know where it ends, we don't actually have to have fear. But I also think we can get hung up on these details that are not Jesus, that are, that are not about him. And when we get hung up on that, we can start saying, and we've got to look for certain signs and what is this person going to lead us the wrong way? Is that person going to lead us? And, and figure we start out current to, events. Yeah. Yeah. How does Russia fit in? How does China right. fit in? How does Israel fit in? Yeah. How, how, does, how does USA fit in? How, how do, what about world leaders? And do they have the mark of the beast? Yep. And, and who's, who's the Antichrist? Mm -hmm. You know, which you, you did a great job talking about that this weekend. Um, and so if we're looking for those things, we're trying to find hope and assurance in something that's not. Christ. Right. And that's just not going to satisfy. Are we, are we putting our faith in a dispensationalist-driven plan and figuring out where we are in a chronological timeline? I'm telling you, when we get to Revelation, I will show folks and we'll, we'll weave our way through it. I don't know how anybody could read that as a chronological timeline. Mm -hmm. It's a vision. It's a dream. That's what the Bible says. It's written to the first century churches in Asia. That's what the Bible says. The rest of it uh, talks about what's going to happen and how and, and, and when, but it's not chronological because you're going like, like from past to present to future and all of a sudden you're in heaven by chapter four and then you're back and it's persecution again. Well, how'd you get from heaven back to, to like regular fallen world? And then chapter seven and you're back to heaven again and then around you're back to persecution and fallen world. Then you're back to heaven again and round and round it goes. Why is Revelation written that way? Well, that leads to our next question, but I'll just tease it a little bit. Because maybe God doesn't want us to get so focused on trying to figure out exactly when. He wants to focus more on who? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. He's going to win. So what should we do in the meantime? I love what Luther said about that. If I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today because mm -hmm. I was planning on doing that anyway. And I've got my spiritual house in order. I've got my faith in Jesus assured. And I don't have to like scramble to get my whole spiritual life together by tomorrow. Now that's the way we get ready for Jesus' second coming, which leads to our next yeah. question. What does Paul want the church to know about when Jesus will return? It's right there in verse yeah. 2 of 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. 
people are saying everything's peaceful and secure. And sometimes we can say it's peaceful and secure because I have developed this chronological timeline that says there's no way Jesus can come back yet because these things haven't happened. We haven't had the seven-year tribulation or the three and a half followed by the other three and a half or the time as, as Daniel talks about, or, or we haven't had uh, the, the two witnesses come up. Well, how do you know? Uh, or we haven't had the beast or we haven't... The mark of the beast is 666 yeah. in Revelation. If you take back in this culture Mm -hmm. uh, that Revelation was written, every name had a numerical value to it. And it wasn't just like, oh, some weird, obscure thing off on the side. Everybody knew their number, Mm -hmm. not just their name. Nero, the persecutor of Christians, this, this emperor, a Roman emperor who executed Christians for their faith, guess what his number is? 666. Exactly. So I'm not, we don't know for sure that it was Nero. But if you're writing this letter to the first century Asian churches who personally know people who were killed by Nero, doesn't that become the most likely, most probable Mm -hmm. uh, explanation for, and so instead of looking around like, do you have the mark? You know, let let me see the back of your hand. Let me, let me, maybe you've got it on there. Maybe that's already happened. And so that's one of the things that has to happen. What, What I'm saying is let's not get too secure in thinking well, I know all these things haven't happened yet, so Jesus can't come back for at least seven years mm-hmm. or for at least a thousand and seven years, depending on my dispensationalist view. I believe, I think about this every day, it's true. I think, could this be the day mm-hmm. that Jesus comes back? I mean, I consciously think in my prayer time and stuff, I, we pray it when we pray the Lord's yeah. Prayer that yeah. Jesus taught us yeah. to pray. Yeah. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, so heaven will come to earth, which mm-hmm. is the way Revelation ends. So... From 1 Thessalonians 4, this discussion about Jesus is coming in the clouds and people will join him. Uh, Most Christians for most of Christian time have said that's the second coming. And then the next verses in chapter 5, when's that going to happen? Any day now. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, uh, as one of my pastor friends said once, I don't, I don't buy green bananas. I think the, (laughs) I think a good point that we can get from this, and I know that our listeners, those that are watching on your, uh, you're digging into Scripture uh, as we're doing this whole Holy Bible in a year. I think when it comes to end times, a lot of people are getting their information from people who are writing about end times. They're writing books about end times. They're putting out podcasts about end times. They're doing documentaries about end times. Mm-hmm. But I think if we're going to actually study end times, we might actually go back to the source, to the Good. Scripture. Yeah. Uh, and when we do that and we say, all right, when is it going to happen? What are, what are the things going to happen? Uh, I, I kind of always give more credence to something Jesus says than anything else. It's just the way uh, I view it. And so uh, I look at like Jesus coming in in Matthew twenty four thirty six, and he says, about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. He also claims, you know, it'll happen like a thief in the night, which is what Paul is quoting here. Paul is quoting Jesus because Jesus is a pretty good guy to quote. And so he is taking him as the source of authority on that. And I think we're, we're served well when we do that as well. Yeah. Amen. How were believers misled about the second coming of Jesus and who is the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians 2 verses 3 through 12? Okay, so I jumped on six, and I wasn't supposed okay. to. That was my bad. So who is going to do six? That was you want to do seven, Murph? No, Go, start with that. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. Um, I think um, believers are um, 
they're already misled um, because they think that the second coming is already happening. They think mm-hmm. that the that there are the signs, there are things happening, and so they're like, it's happening right now. Uh, it's beginning right now, and so they're confused about this. And so Paul wants to make it really clear. He's like, I don't care what you're hearing. You know, even if somebody says, I heard Paul say it, I want you to understand it's not happening right now. And uh, and and I would just summarize this as simply as possible. If you want to know when Christ has returned, if you want to know that Christ has returned, be assured you're going to know. There's going to be mm-hmm. no missing it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be hearing about it <laughs> from good. others. You're going to know that he's back. Yeah. yeah, it won't be like, how'd you know? And I didn't hear about it. Exactly. Yeah, everyone's going to cover this yeah. story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even bigger than the hurricane in Florida. For sure. That That's, that's going to be global news. There's... There's a okay, so let's step back mm-hmm. and let's look at First Thessalonians a little more holistically. I think what Paul is saying here from start to finish, first Thessalonians through second Thessalonians, following Jesus is a countercultural thing to do mm-hmm. because uh, the the world around you won't get it, they'll persecute you for it. And specifically they were persecuting him for it because they were saying Jesus is king. And then the the empire people were like, actually, Caesar is king, and and who are what that you know? Let's let's throw these people in prison and kill them. So Paul is saying, keep the faith, hold on. It's countercultural. You should expect some pushback if you're really going to follow Jesus, because the world that doesn't get Jesus isn't going to like the Jesus people. It mm-hmm. is, isn't going to like what you stand for. And is going to maybe have a little FOMO, like they are mm-hmm. afraid they're missing out on something. And so it, what I don't understand, I might be the most angry about and upset about. So Paul's saying, relax. You're okay. This you should have expected. Secondly, how do you respond to persecution? Do it with love. And third, you hold on to hope. And the greatest hope is knowing the story ends really well for you. Jesus is going to come back, and that's going to turn out really, really well. So you, so you pray for it, thy mm-hmm. kingdom come, mm-hmm. and you pray for earth to come, for heaven to come to earth. You pray for more of the glimpses of heaven to break through in the meantime, and putting it in alignment with Ecclesiastes, which is kind of nicely timed. And you live for things that are going to last, and in the meantime, you enjoy the moments on earth. If you have a good meal, even, yeah. you know, Ecclesiastes says along the way, enjoy it. Soak it up, because tomorrow you might not have a good meal, you know, mm-hmm. or you might not get any food at all. Um, so hold on to hope. Keep the faith. That's really what Paul is saying. And if you do, encourage each other with this. Mm-hmm. You know, hold, walk with a confidence that people can't have if they don't know how their story ends, mm-hmm. which is maybe why they're living for all the wrong things. Well, that's good. Last question. Why do you think Paul warns those who are living idle lives? And does that have anything to do with the rest of this letter? I think that ties right into uh, the confidence piece that we were just talking about, right? If you have that hope, if you get this larger narrative of what's happening in the world, if you're able, your life has context, then you're going to want to be a part of that, right? We uh, have the opportunity to not just talk about good news, but to be good news. And I think that there's an active response to uh, God's grace. It's easy to, I suppose, to say, I just want to sit off the side and kind of watch this whole thing unfold. But if this is true, and if we really have nothing to fear, then that freedom empowers us uh, to continue doing what God has been doing for a long time, which is bringing heaven to earth. Right now it's in little pieces, right? But there's going to be a day when it's in fullness, and man, that's going to be an amazing thing. Uh, and so why not be a part of actively making that happen today? That's good. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, God made us to be in community. He made us to be connected to others. And so sometimes I think when we think about our idleness, you know, oh, this impacts me, but it doesn't. It's it, it, My idleness can also create work for someone else. Mm-hmm. My idleness can uh, put more on someone than they need to, to carry. Uh, and so God is saying, you know, play the part that you have been called to, the purpose for which you have been given. And, you know, even when you look back to the Garden of Eden, Eden you know, it was not just sit and look at everything. This is going to be pretty. You had yeah. role. You had a job. You had something to do to tend to the earth, to take care of the creation. And so we are all called into something. So we don't need to sit by on the sidelines. We need to actually actively engage in that. Uh, and and do what God has called each of us to do. And sometimes we need help in figuring out what that is, but we can sit and think about that forever, or we can actually start getting in the game and figuring those things out. You know, it's funny, when I read this, it's, when you read God's Word uh, with a, hopefully an open mind, it can hit you new. Mm-hmm. And when I read this part, I was like, well, that kind of surprised me a little bit, because we live in a culture... I wonder if Paul was writing a letter to the American 21st century mm-hmm. church. I don't think he'd have to push too hard on idleness. Mm-hmm. Now, for some people, yes. Mm-hmm. For some people, because there's a percentage of people who maybe inherited a lot of money or whatever, and they just don't have to work. They just, they, and they choose not to, and they're idle. Mm-hmm. And Paul's saying, you were actually made for more than that. If you take it back into the rhythm of creation, we weren't created to rest seven days. We we're created to rest one day mm-hmm. and to work six. But if Paul's writing this letter to the American church, I think it would include, hey, workaholics, Mm-hmm. You know, uh, take your Sabbath and, sure. and, and would push us back toward having a day off, mm-hmm. having rest, taking a vacation, taking a breath. Jesus took breaks for crying out loud. Amen. Uh, and if he took breaks and vacations or like, vacations might be a little strong, but if he <laughs> he would go off by himself, he would retreat off by himself and just be and just mm-hmm. sit and renew. He followed the Sabbath. But. There is the other side of this too, and I I kind of like the balance. I yeah. I, I kind of like like yeah. Every once in a while, there's a lazy streak in folks, and every once in a while, there's a we can go too far in the pushback of well, work life balance. I really need to I really need to have more breaks. I really need to have, and yes, yes, yes. I got to have boundaries. I got to have all these things. Absolutely, and it would be unbiblical to not have a Sabbath. But for some Christians. You're on the sidelines way too much. And and maybe the word God has for you through Paul's letter is time to get to work. Mm-hmm. It, it's time to go. Um, if you're taking seven days off a week, if you're taking three days off a week, that's too much on a regular basis mm-hmm. a, a, as a pattern. It's time for you to use the gifts God's given to you for the glory of God, not the praise of others, but for the glory of God and for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and the mission that we share. That's good. Well, I think it is. It's God's word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's humbling too. It's like the stuff we talk about with such um, passion mm-hmm. and with such confidence is not because we have passion and confidence in our wisdom. Yeah. It's because we have passion and confidence in what God's word is guiding us to be and to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is good, Emily. Mm-hmm. Good summary uh, <laughs> of, of what we're doing here this year as a church family. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You guys are awesome. You're my heroes for reading through the whole Holy Bible. And I know you are, because I, wherever I go, people are like, I'm reading the Bible, I'm doing it, and then you have questions. And a lot of those make it onto this podcast. So thank you so much. We will see you at worship this weekend. Thanks for joining us today. Please make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite platform, and we'll see you next time. Hey.